Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. Hub24 is on a mission to empower advisors to deliver better financial futures for their clients. They're dedicated to customer service excellence and delivering innovative product solutions that create value for advisors and their clients. These are just some of the reasons why advisors rate them number one for overall satisfaction and why their managed portfolio solution has been rated best in market five years running. Hub24 believes nothing happens in isolation. So they're working together with advisors, licensees, and industry leaders to leverage their data and technology expertise to help solve key challenges in the delivery of financial advice so more Australians can access cost-effective advice. Welcome back to the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and today I'm joined by somebody who a lot of people would know from around the industry or from the TV itself, Joey McCann. Hey, Fraser. Happy to be here with the XY crew today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for bringing the energy. But uh, let's uh, let's start with a little bit about what you're doing right now, because you've had a few changes recently, uh, and, and, we'll, and we'll probably get into a lot of this conversation, but you, you've done a lot over the last few years. You've been, an, been on a reality TV show, and now you've got a new job. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. I've uh, I have just started a new gig, and I think that came off the back of a bit of bit of soul searching and enlightenment I found out in the Aussie outback in the recent season of Survivor. I think I I was obviously on the brains tribe in that, and I got to meet some amazing people. I was inspired by some of the amazing things that they do and the way in which they contribute to society. And I think I got out of that, and I felt like it was time for a change. So after seven years in licensee land, I made the jump over to. I guess we'll call it the fintech side of things. I've joined Padual Financial Group as their head of advice sales. Fantastic. Now, that's not an unusual uh, place for you, which we'll probably get into a bit later in the conversation, but you've, uh, you know, technology has a, has sort of been in your blood for some time. Oh, definitely. Look, I, I think for me, uh, technology is, it, it's what's going to change this game. I think the advice game, look, it's, you know, at the end of the day, there's there's so many challenges the advisors out there are facing today, but I think technology and like intuitive technology that actually helps them do what they do best and that's you know highlight the value of advice to their clients I think is key but also you know another big component of what we do it's sort of combining that really great technology with smart people and I think that's a winning combination. Fantastic now let's uh, let's go back in, uh, in time and explore your journey tell us about how you got into the, the, the profession in the first place. Yeah right well it, it is quite an interesting journey because prior to joining or starting in this in this um, great profession, the financial advice profession, I've uh, I was a tradesman actually, a fitter machinist down in Canberra. I worked at the Royal Australian Mint, that that little uh, magical land where they make all of the coins, um, and I did an apprenticeship there, a four year apprenticeship as a fitter machinist. It was probably the end of my third year, I think, there where I bumped into my cousin Matt Esler, who is actually the founder of one of the fa- co founders of Midwinter, but also um, the founder of Padua, where I am today, and. And I bumped into my cousin and I said, I heard you're doing really well up there in the big smoke. You know, it was like, how does a, a young kid from Canberra crack that, you know, financial services game? And he said, well, Joey, you, firstly, you need a few bits of paper to say that 
you know, uh, like at the bare minimum, a diploma, but, you know, ideally a degree and whatever else. So I said, look, I'm doing my apprenticeship, but I'm happy to, you know, do a little cheeky diploma in financial services on the side in between packing shelves and boxing Olympians in the Arvo. Heck, there's there's enough hours in the day to get whatever done, every, anything you've done that you put your mind to. So I think I, I got enrolled. I called him back three months later. I said, cuz... I've finished, you know, and he said, oh, you finished the first subject. Good. Keep up the good work. I said, no, I finished the whole diploma. Now what? And he said, geez, three months, like in between all this other stuff you're doing. I said, I told you I want this. I want this, my friend. And then he said, all right, we'll get you enrolled in the advanced diploma. I think that took a little bit longer. Um, but at sort of the same time, I finished my apprenticeship and they offered me, a, you know, they sort of said, we want to bring you on. We want to fast track you to foreman. I said, thanks, guys, but no thanks. I've now got an advanced diploma in financial services. I'm moving up in the big smoke, and I'm, yeah, I'm going to change the game. Fantastic. What a story. Now, that uh, from the background of uh, you started out as a fitter and turner with a, on your way to a, what we call a license to print money, maybe. Is that, is that, would that be accurate? Yeah, although all we printed there was coins. So, you know, <laughs> I, I'd need very big pockets and, you know, to finally to, to make my fortune there. But, um, hey, you mentioned also in that, uh, in that grab that you were boxing with Olympians. You're obviously, uh, you know, fairly active in that space. Was it the, uh, down the Institute way or what, what were you, what were you doing there? Yeah, obviously down in Canberra, you've got the AIS and a couple of the gyms I boxed out have had some really great, you know, um, Australian champions and Olympic boxers. So at the time, I was also had grand plans of, you know, winning championships as a, as a fighter. And I think we'll kind of touch on that later. But I think the, the boxing for me was something I got into sort of sort of 15, 16 years old, but it was one of those sports where, you know, I think if you don't dedicate yourself to it, you get hurt. You get hurt in a big way. So I think for me, it really taught me some good disciplines in life that I've kind of tried to apply to work. I've applied to, you know, my running in later years. But it's, you know, you can't, you know, if you take shortcuts, it's just you're not going to get the outcome that you want. So I think for me, boxing was always, it was it was almost like a chess match. I was never someone that would get, you know, a little cop, a little cheeky jab in the nose and get angry. I would just you know, automatically think, how do I avoid that happening again? So it was one of those sports I just really loved and it, it kind of taught me really good disciplines. And and like I said, it's it's disciplines that I've, I've been able to apply to every sort of facet of my life. But yeah, it was it was an interesting one. I'd finish work at the Mint. I'd go there and, you know, I'd probably rock up to pack shelves at Woolies that night with a, a fresh black eye from Gerard Omani or one of the killers that I was in in the afternoon sparring with. But again, it was it was just great, great time in my life where I've, I felt like, you know, and we'll touch on it later as well, like energy, man. Like I, I think I was living off about three hours sleep a night, but it was all I needed because I was just so fired up. I was so, you know, I just had so much drive and I just wanted to, to be something. I remember getting home from Woolies at 12 and just chipping away at that diploma. And, and I think, yeah, energy, it's a heck of a thing and it's something you can choose every day. And I'll, and I'll talk more on that later because I'm getting excited talking about it. Yeah, I was going to say that yeah, you definitely bring the energy and, and, and as you said, the disciplines. Was it, was, it the, was it the boxing and the exercise that gave you the energy or did you have the energy and you needed the boxing and exercise to try and take <laughs> some out of you? Look, I think when you're putting your, your mind to something you love and, and you're, you're really dedicating yourself to it, it gives you energy. Um, I, I'm a big believer. I bounce out of bed every morning. I might have, a, I might be a little dusty from a few too many wines the night before, but again, I just flick that energy switch. I turn it on. I make sure the first interaction of the day, whether it's the bus driver or the barista, 
I make sure that I light their their world up. And and I think you give out good energy. And I'm sure the advisors, the XY advisors out there, that the more that you bring to a client meeting and that you give to those clients, you get it back, right? And, and, and that just fuels you and gives you more energy. So for me, it was just like, it wasn't any one thing. It was just the combination of every interaction throughout the day and the also coupled with the fact that I was doing, you know, things that I was passionate about. It just, yeah, it was, I was like a, you know, I was on a good trajectory and I still am. And yeah, it's, you can't stop that momentum once you get it. Fantastic. And I love the idea of making sure that the first interaction of the day is a, is a really positive one. Tell, yeah. Let's go back to your journey. So then what happened? Uh, you, you've got your cousin um, getting you to move north or what, what, what was the plan? Yeah, look, so I t- turned the mint down, you know, and I um, did a little bit of travel and I think I came back and, and, and Matt Ezra at the time said, uh, you know, he'd been telling my story um, to the, the fellow directors, you know, Julian Plummer, Andrew, Andrew McClellan, a few other guys that you probably know well. And they, they said, yeah, get him up for an interview. So I think on the, on the, it was a Friday morning. I had to go buy a suit because I didn't even have one. Um, I remember driving up to Sydney and, you know, I think obviously Matt being my cousin had to sit that meeting out. So I remember walking into the midwinter boardroom with all the directors and I think Pratik, who was the, you know, head of power planning or something at the time. And, you know, I sat down and, and again, I couldn't really, you know, relate anything that I had done so much to, to the role. All I sort of, they sort of said, have you got a good attention to detail? I said, well, I machine precision parts for a living if to, to 0.01 of a mil. Do you know, you can't even see that, right? And if I stuff that up, I could be five hours into a job. I've got to start again. So I said, guys, I don't stuff up. I, you know, I've got a good attention to detail. But I said, look, at the end of the day, you're going to be interviewing a bunch of, you know, really experienced you know, good uni grads, AMP, Horizons, you know, protégés on the on the up and up that have been studying this for their, their whole lives, right? But I said, guys, I'll be the first one in and the last one to leave. I'll be the best investment you ever made. Just give me a, give me a shot. And then I remember walking out to the elevators. Um, Matt came running out. He just said, uh, they want you to start Monday. So I hadn't even got out of the office before they'd offered me the role. So again, I was living at Canberra at the time. I think I moved, chucked my doona and pillow in the boot and I drove up to Sydney, slept on a mate's couch for the first two months until I found a place. But And that was it. On the Monday morning, I started. On my first lunch break, I enrolled in a university degree because I, I kind of got there, felt like a bit of an imposter. So I remember enrolling in a, in a Bachelor of Commerce and uh, majoring in finance and I slowly ticked that as I climbed the corporate ladder. I ticked that off along the way, and yeah, 2019, I, I finally finished that that degree. But again, it was just one of those things. I wanted to almost almost show myself as well that I was committed to this. Um, and yeah, that's 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 the story. A crazy one. Yeah, I can just imagine that boardroom uh, to be a fly on the wall. In that boardroom, I think the, the directors wouldn't have known what what hit them at the at the time <laughs> uh, as you walked in. Uh, so you started there as sort of in a in a power planning role. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I started in a paraplaning role, which I think was, you know, we were sort of doing limited um, advice documents. But again, this is one of the, like I started on the same day as a guy named Michael Dunworth, who's, who's really made it big over in Silicon Valley and done some amazing things over there. But I remember he and I, we were very competitive. So, you know, like we kind of came in and once we got our head around and it, it, we got our head around it very quickly, I think the business was doing about 30 plans a day or something. And then he and I, we got it to the point where you know, I think we were doing about 50 to 60 each a day, right, which they couldn't comprehend. But in addition to that, we also built like a quality assurance checklist around it, right? And we had to check each other's work. And we almost, we had a tally board. And if I pinged him for something wrong, you know, we'd, I'd draw up, I'd take great pleasure in drawing up a little, you know, blotch on the, on the whiteboard. So, you know, 
what we actually ended up building was this really good, you know, quality assurance kind of process. But at the same time, we were so productive because we were just too competitive. Like we'd only have five minute lunch breaks because we just wanted to beat each other. I would get in at 7 a.m. and he'd already be there. And I'd be like, you know, oh, you're ready to go home today. It'd be almost 7 p.m. or something. And we'd just still be there pumping out plans. I think the directors on our first lunch break, on our first drinks together, sort of, I think Julian just gave us the black credit card and said, guys, go and order whatever you want. And I think Michael you know, might have ordered two two shots of $80 tequila or something. So, yeah, but anyway, it was it was good times, but it was also like a, a good opportunity for me to really start to get my head around that, the whole advice process piece. I think power planning is a great place to start um, in the industry. Um, and then from there, probably, you know, six to nine months in, I kind of moved over to the sales side of things. And yeah, kind of, again, it was a really good, you know, stepping advisors, you know, kind of getting a good understanding of, you know, these strategies that they were compared. Like I got a real love for for the, I guess, the the how in-depth they go with the clients in terms of trying to get them the best outcome. It's not just picking a product. It's actually modeling strategies against each other. So I think for me, I, it was a great time in my life because I learned a lot. I kind of, you know, learned to sort of, yeah, and, and I never had a sales role before. So it was good to kind of get into that side of things. And yeah, that's the midwinter journey. Yeah, fantastic. So sales became the, uh, well, business development management became the yeah. the next step. And then it was around, uh, right now, go out and talk to take your take your passion and, and your energy uh, and, and and even a little bit of that competitive nature out there and go and, and, and go and find some advisors. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's that's the thing. Like I remember going through, you know, calling these big spreadsheets of advisors and and again, it almost became like not a game, but it was just, uh, uh, you know, it was part of the job and, you, you know, you've got to, you know, those cold calls. It's like you've just got to, these is what young guys in the sales kind of environment need to get their head around is that you've got to make those calls. You've got to have some very uncomfortable ones at times, but, you know, you get the hang of it, you know, uh, over time. And um, yeah, like I'd I'd love to listen to a few of my calls back. It'd be very, very embarrassing. I think like me, you know, blubbering my way through trying to get that meeting. But yeah, again, it's, it's just been like sales or, you know, I know some people don't like that word, but at the end of the day, like, you know, the whole advice game, you, you are selling yourself, you're selling what you do. Um, you've got to be passionate about it, but you also got to be, I think, hungry. You know, if you want to grow and you want to, you want success, you've got to, you've got to stay hungry and you've got to, you know, surround yourself with people that are going to kind of maintain that hunger as well in you. Yeah. Fantastic. There's a lot of it. Uh, there's a lot of it that uh, is summed up with attitude, I guess. Um, tell, tell us about your next step after that. Yeah, yeah. So from there, I took a role over at Morningstar Investment Management at the time. I think it was Ibbotson Associates, but um, that role was very much, you know, it was separately managed accounts or SMAs. It just kind of became the new flavor of the month. And we had a diversified set that, you know, again, was taking out to the market. I was actually, I think, Morningstar Investment Management's first ever secondment. So actually, part of the role, like I learned the SMA story, and then I actually went over to Total Financial Solutions Account Plus Licensee and um, you know, kind of worked out of their head office and kind of took that out. And this was back when the licensees, you know, part of their proposition was, you know, and part of their, you know, key source of revenue was, you know, white labeled products that they'd get a, a good rate for the advisor and client on, but they'd also, you know, there would be a margin involved. So, but anyway, so, but I think at the end of that first year, Total Financial Solutions offered me a role. And, and I think for me, it was licensee land. I, it really appeared, appealed to me. Like at the end of the day, a license. What is it offering? It's offering a, an advisor, you know, 
a license to trade. But I think, you know, I saw it as so much more than that. I saw it sort of saw it as one big family. Like you're, you're almost licensee working hand in hand with the advisor, you know, trying to, you know, obviously we're working to help them get the best outcome for their clients. But I just love the camaraderie and the community. I think that's what really drew me to licensee land. And, and yeah, I, I, I you know, I, again, I've, I spent seven years in that environment and I loved every minute of it. Yeah, fantastic. What, what uh, you know, I think you sort of brought the teamwork uh, aspect to it. You know, everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's trying to work together. Uh, what were some of your key learnings in, in that licensee space? Yeah, I, I think for me, it's that, that no firm, you know, I, I look, every firm and every advisor is, you know, a different way of doing things. And, you know, I think as a licensee, it's, you know, I, you can't get full into that trap of just, you know, providing a one-size-fits-all solution. So as my time as a practice development manager, I would try to, you know, tailor, you know, and and I guess my proposition or what I was offering, for, you know, in terms of servicing the businesses, I'd try to tailor that to definitely help them meet the needs of their clients and whether it be, you know, different technologies that they wanted to integrate in their business. It could be helping them out with the people side of things. It was really providing more of a personal touch. And I think that's what I really love the the key learnings are that look, you know, every business, you know, is is different. Every advisor needs different. Every, you know, their clients' needs are going to be different. So it's it's tailoring your approach just as an advisor would for their different clients, and and really coming up with you know meaningful solutions that are going to actually help them um, do what they do best. So obviously, the licensee space changed a lot over that period of uh, seven odd years that you were there. Tell me about how that evolution, what that looked like from when you got there to sort of when you when you left. Yeah, well, look, as I mentioned that, you know, there was licensees definitely had a lot of sources of revenue that, you know, typically through product that would, you know, really prop up their balance sheet and ensure that, you know, that they could throw uh, resources at, I guess, supporting the advisors. And and again, a lot of the, you know, you look at advisor fees five years ago versus today or even three years versus today, you know, as those product subsidies have ended, You've re- and licensees have moved to that that cleaner operating model. You've you've really seen, you know, obviously the cost to the business, the advice firm, um, increase dramatically, which again has been, you know, it's it's a bit of a it's a tough conundrum for licensees because obviously you've got this revenue stopping, you've got to you know push it, you know, increase the advisor fees, but it's also hard to throw additional resources at you know key personnel that are going to help these firms because again the there's just not a whole lot of you know, revenue available to licensees as there was. It's really, you look at the levers, it's it's licensee fees and there's not a whole lot else, right? Like if, if you're moving away to that clean model. So, you know, that's why I think as time of continues to evolve, you will see a lot of consolidation in the licensee space. You'll also see, um, you know, potentially, you know, these um, different licensees purchasing, you know, service providers that, again, that they can, you know, help, you know, that can help their advisors and whatever else because, yeah, it is. It's become quite a. It's it's a it's a tough space to be in at the moment. Licensee land, definitely. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that actually uh, in a bit more depth. So uh, you know, obviously, there's no crystal ball here. We don't really know what's going to happen. But what what are your thoughts of the evolution? You think there's going to be consolidation? There's going to be the big in and the small in. You know, the, the individual self license and then big in. What, what, what do you think this is all going? Yeah, I I do sort of see it that way. I think there will definitely look. There's there's definitely a need for both. I think like there will be that that larger end of town that <clears throat> you will see a lot of those mid tier providers. Um, consolidate and you've seen it recently you know um, Clearview Centerpoint um, you'll see a lot more of this you know Century and Wealth Today and others but there's definitely always going to be a space for that you know 
unique kind of boutique that does want to, I guess, control their own identity to a certain extent. And, and um, you know, I guess they want to, they want a bit more freedom in what they do. You know, it is, the bigger you get, the harder it gets because you've, you know, you've got to, at the end of the day, you've got a license to protect. So, you know, the compliance kind of frameworks that you've got in place have to, you've got to ensure that they're, they're, they're you're covering all your bases. So that's why, again, you've seen, you know, these, these documents, um, you know, just become bigger and bigger. Um, and, the, and the time it takes to get advice out the door has actually increased probably since the time I've, I've got here, right, which is, is crazy to think the phone I had when I started in this industry to the phone I've got today. And then you look at the time it takes to produce advice when I started at midwinter to, to today, it hasn't really changed. So that was kind of what also one of the real precursors to what drew me to, to Padua. I wanted to be at the forefront of that change and really be a, a part of a business that's going to move that dial because it's like I said it's the it's the technology it's that flow of client data from existing CRMs into your fact finds into your you know advice request forms but then it's having a really good quality kind of team there to support you um, so I think for me it kind of covered all the bases and I, I really think that um, you know for, for the typical advisor out there what I saw the advisor ratings kind of the numbers it's you know they're 48 years old they've got 103 clients or something and charging on average 4,000 per client recurring you know you look at that 400 plus grand per advisor there's not a whole like if you you, you know I think they're paying themselves a salary of 130 on average and then you look at you know there might be a support person you've got your licensee costs your business overheads you know, and potentially a power planner, like there's just no margin in there. There's no profit margin. So I think for me, you know, the firm of the future will outsource. They will embrace technology um, because I think you've got to, based on those metrics, it's the only way that you are going to make, um, you know, make a profit. But um, I think if you, you do it the right way and, you know, you've got a good kind of su- support around you for doing that, um, or, you know, I think, you definitely can. Yeah, fantastic. I love I love the attitude or your attitude and like trying to save the world. It's like, yeah. uh, how do we save the world? There's all these problems. How do we solve them? Just I want to go back a little step now. Over the last few years, you've obviously, you know, you mentioned you're doing your boxing on the side uh, when you were younger, but you sort of turned that to uh, distance running. Talk to us about that. Yeah, look, probably about a year after I think I started at midwinter, I like obviously I tried to continue the boxing when I moved to Sydney, but it was a bit hard because I was, you know, obviously staying back so late trying to complete the most plans every day. Um, so actually I just sort of fell into running. Like I always kind of did a bit of running to keep fit for boxing. I remember coming into work one day in a midwinter. I think I turned to my colleague Retta. I said, Retta, I ran 12Ks on the weekend. I know because I ran it and then I drove around it to measure, you know, and, and he said, oh, you should do a half marathon. I was like, what the heck's a half marathon? And he's like, I think it's 21K. So anyway, I Googled, you know, Sydney next Sydney half marathon and the M7 cities marathon which is this you know lovely scenic run along the M7 highway in Sydney but I thought why register for the half when you can register for the full so I think I had four weeks to prepare boom registered Um, I think I did one 18k run in the lead up to that but again I'm a big believer in biting off more than you can swallow and chewing like crazy so I rocked up to the start line of that in my tiger beer singlet and board shorts and, you know, I think I had a, the biggest smile anyone could have ever had. Like it sort of, I just sort of went through the motions and all of a sudden I'm there, I'm racing a marathon and I'm like, just couldn't, I, I kept pinching myself. I'm like, I'm running a marathon. I'm feeling good till about 32 Ks. The wheels fell off. I think every kilometer from there felt like 10, but I still got it done in about three hours, 51. I couldn't walk for a few weeks afterwards, but I thought, I thought to myself, like I said, I'll never do that again at the finish line. But then a couple of weeks later, as I started to be able to walk again, I thought, you know what? 
if I actually train for one of these and, and put in a bit more effort, I could bring that time down significantly. So I think a few weeks after that, I'm registered for the Sydney Marathon. I do Melbourne a couple of weeks after that. But then I read this book that changed my life. It was called Ultra Marathon Man, which, you know, I thought marathons were the biggest, baddest things that anyone could do. And I read about this guy doing 100-mile races in America and, you know, ordering pizzas on his long training runs to meet him at intersections and all of this sort of thing. And I thought, this guy's cool. I want to be more like this guy. So I think I Googled that afternoon ultra marathons in Australia. And two weeks later, there was one from, I think, Cairns to Port Douglas. So I found myself racing through the danger rainforest about 80k 85ks or something whatever that was um and then i was hooked like that hurt like hell but i thought you know this is i i just i think what i loved about it was you know yes you know people think oh it's you know how do you how does your body handle it it's not your body in an ultra marathon or even a marathon it's your mind right and it doesn't matter how fit you are at 30ks you've burnt your glycogen stores or whatever they are and yet you hurt everything starts hurting but i think it's it's your ability to deal with that pain and process it in a way and like for me i just smile i smile out there until i actually believe i'm having fun and and i think so i finished that race the next thing i was googling was world's toughest ultra marathons and i'm registered you know straight away i pay the deposit to race 250 kilometers self-supported across the sahara desert the hottest place on earth uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of how it began, and it was I haven't stopped. I've raced, you know, deserts, jungles, two hundred fifty. We're talking two hundred fifty, three hundred kilometer races, mountains of India. You know, I've raced through the freezing cold nights in you know New Zealand, two hundred k straight, and all sorts of crazy things. But what I've loved is that you, you, you've I've learned so much about what the what what the what you're capable of if you you do put your mind to it. Like I've never not finished a race, and I've raced. With you know, I raced two fifty k's across the Gobi Desert with two hernias. I've raced sick. I've raced injured. But again, there's not. I will leave on a stretcher before I ever say I quit. And and I think that's just made me more hungry in my real day to day life. It's you know, it, it kind of I don't know. Every kind of facet of my life just falls in a place when I've kind of got purpose when I wake up. And and purpose comes through getting uncomfortable. It's it's you know putting yourself out there, picking challenges that are going to bring out the best in you and then just biting down on that gum shield and making it happen. Yeah, it's a, it's an incredible thing, isn't it? I, I, I you know, the, the, the fact that, uh, you know, nothing's, nothing's doable until you do it and then all of a sudden it becomes, you're capable of doing it. It's like, oh, that's, that's nothing now. And I love the idea um, of, you know, everything hurts. I know it hurts. I did a marathon once. It hurt. Uh, and uh, except you get the energy back in the last couple hundred meters, you go, wow, this is great. Everyone's cheering me on. Um, uh, but the, the idea of smiling through it, I think that's a really, really important piece here because there is a, there is a certain amount of endurance that advisors have gone through at the moment that have been going through for the last sort of seven or eight years. Uh, and to have that positive mindset on the way through, I think is, is, is a massive part of getting through this. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I know it's been a very, you know, it has been a very challenging few years for the advisor out there with all the regulatory change with, you know, I think the great work that they do kind of being dragged through the mud off the back of the Royal Commission, all these sorts of things. I know it's just, you know, it's just, it's like the hits just feel like they keep keep coming, right? But, and I think couple that with a, a global pandemic, we're all locked down. And, you know, I think, all I would say, you know, in terms of like an ultra, when I line up at the start line of a 300-kilometer ultra marathon, you know, a couple of Ks in with my 12-kilo backpack on, you know, everything's hurting already and you're thinking, geez, how am I going to run another 298 Ks? 
But I think for me, it's just breaking it down to it could be the next checkpoint. When I'm really hurting, it's just the tree. I can see, you know, a few hundred meters in front of me. But I think, you know, the advice I'd give any advisor out there, like I know that you you, you are a resilient lot. You've, you've, you keep showing up for your clients through all of this. But it's, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Don't focus on, you know, you know, Freedom Day and all these sorts of like I would just focus on the, the next goal as a, you know, the break, break it into bite-sized pieces because, again, it, it's just too overwhelming to just think about it all in one hit. So just I think come up with little wins that are, you know, as, you know, it could be personal wins, it could be team win, wins with your, um, you know, with, with your, your, your people within your business. But come up with these wins. And, and another big thing for me, Fraser, I'm a big believer in in calling these wins out. So, you know, in 2019, I think I, I got on there, was slightly hungover from New Year's. And I remember jumping onto Facebook and posting, you know, like, you know, I was probably 10 kilos heavier than I am now, but I, I, I just said, bugger it, I'm going for it. And I, there was a great session I saw at the FPA conference by an Alex Sheen cause, because I said I would, right? So I think I started my post with, you know, Fam, friends and fam, you know, I'm I'm setting myself a crazy goal this year to race 52 marathons in 52 weeks. I'm going to make this crazy goal a reality because I said I would. And I remember posting that and thinking, oh, geez, you're on the hook now, Joey. But like all these friends I hadn't heard from in years saying, you know, this is awesome. You know, this is this is great. And and I think what I did and then I think that night I raced uh, a midnight marathon out in Narrabeen. Um, a week later, I was, you know, racing one through Tasmania. A week after that, the Glasshouse Mountains. But I think as I as I kind of went through this, and you know, I went through some little niggles along the way, but I kept calling it out. I kept saying, "I'm in Tassie to race tonight, tomorrow's marathon." Like even if I was in pain, thinking, "Geez, you know, I probably shouldn't tell anyone that I'm actually here doing this in case something goes wrong." I think that's crap. I think you got to call it out. You got to back yourself, whether it's a business growth goal. It could be, you know, taking your kids to all the home games for a sporting team. You got to call it out. You got to get yourself on the hook because um, I think accountability is key. It's got personal accountability, but also from those around you. And look, your friends and family only want to see you succeed. So I think by throwing it out there, you, you'll get more support than you think. So call it out. The bigger the goal, the better, but make sure you you call it out and make it happen because you said you would. Yeah, fantastic. And I love these little wins along the way. It just gives the uh, the little bit of dopamine in the brain, uh, in oh, the mind, uh, celebrate the little wins. And, and, like, and as you said, the accountability is a massive part. And so this all becomes back down to the com- conversation that you, know, you sort of started earlier on. How the hell do you fit in 52 marathons in 52 weeks whilst holding down a corporate job? Yeah, look, it wasn't easy, and part of my like philosophy in life, as well as I'm a yes, I'm a yes man, like like Jim Carrey was in that. You know, I'm sure it won all the Academy Awards a year that it came out. But um, I, there was a great message in that movie of just you know, like it's easy to say no. Um, I sort of set this goal to do 50, but I also to do 52 marathons, but I was also not going to change my normal philosophy of saying yes. So it did come back to bite me a few times. I did race a few of those marathons hungover, but. I kind of, I think by doing like living my normal life and not putting, you know, you know, certain lifestyle, my usual lifestyle and the things that made me happy on hold to do another goal meant that, yes, I was bloody exhausted some days. But again, I, I when you're, you're kind of happy and you're, you're, you're living in the moment and you're, you're choosing the right energy, 
um, it all kind of worked out. So in terms of training, I think when you're racing most weekends, you don't need to do a whole lot of training. I typically squeeze my training in. I'll run into the city. So I'll have my backpack on with my you know suit pants and shirt. I've got a few jackets at the office and I'll just run into the gym, have a shower, a little session up to the office. So my usual commute from North Bondi is not too, it's, it's probably about the same time me running as opposed to the, you know, jumping on the 333 and the training. So it, it's kind of, a, it's about, you know, squeezing things in, you know, within your own, you know, rhythm and routine. It's getting smarter the way you do things um, and the way you can squeeze things in. If, and if it means getting up a little bit earlier to just have a bit of you time, I think you, you can't overlook that because if you're just going through the motions every day, if you're just working within your business and you you know, it, it's just going to feel like a grind and a tough slog. And, you know, you, you will be like that hamster in the wheel. You just, you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to just go around in circles. So I, my biggest advice to anyone out there is just make sure I'm like, and it could be a 10 minute meditation in the morning. It could be just, you know, a walk with the dog make sure that you just become part of your routine. Like that run for me into the office, that's like my meditation. I'm pumping some tunes. I had a friend of mine the other day saying, I think I saw you dancing at the traffic lights on the way into work the other morning. But that's me. I'm just living my best life, you know, and choosing that energy because I think, yeah, you, you just, you've got to put that time into yourself or, you know, all the things that you're, all those good things that you kind of set yourself are not going to happen. Yeah, I think I remember um, running into a couple of times. Not running, you were doing the running in in the city. Uh, I think you were in a on a mission to get somewhere or do something. So it was kind of like you nearly run us over. But it was always it's good to see you're out and about. And, and and as you mentioned before, running with a big smile on your face. Oh, that's right, a hundred percent. So yeah, look, I got it done. I will just for any of those wondering, did I knock over the fifty two marathons? Well, I only needed 38 weeks in the end to make that crazy goal a reality. Um, I actually did. I went over to Europe, which kind of fast-tracked my plans. I did 10 in – I had a cousin's wedding, but I thought, while I'm over there for my cousin's wedding in Oxford, I'm going to do 10 marathons in 10 days in Italy. And then I did about another six or seven around the UK after after the wedding. Hungover as. But anyway, look, <laughs> we won't get into that. But again, I turned that trip. It was part holiday. It was part you know, goal, like I would still on the Aperols every night in Italy, still drinking those wines on the lake, eating those pizzas. It is it is a great place to go and race marathons back to back, by the way, because there's no shortage of carbs in Italy, I will yeah, tell you that. It's a good plan, isn't it? And I suppose it doesn't really matter what you, how many carbs you're eating when you're running a marathon every day. <laughs> uh, t- tell us about, uh, so you, how many marathons did you actually get in the calendar year? I did 58. Look, and I think I could have definitely done a lot more, but I think once I ticked it off, I thought, you know, it's the weather's a bit nicer than usual. I'm just going to enjoy myself and do the odd one here and there. But I think 58, I can definitely outdo that. Um, and when this, once the world opens up again, oh, you better, maybe 100 in a year I might go for, man. <laughs> Why not? You better write a book about it. Hey, uh, um, I want to talk about uh, something that you did more recently when it comes to, uh, you know, you managed to get onto a, an episode of, or not an episode, a series of Survivor. Yes, I did. And again, this is this is a show that I, I must admit I had never watched at the time. I had obviously knew, I think I'd watched the first season um, of the American version, kind of liked it, but I just, I never kind of, fell into it and I knew the Aussie one I'd sort of seen snippets of it looked pretty crazy but I actually but it all comes back to I think you know this whole yes philosophy and energy it all kind of aligned to get me on this show because I think it was I was out one night in Manly with a few industry folk we were having a great night out and I remember we bumped in a you know a couple of lovely ladies and I think one of them so happened to be a, um, a TV producer and you know we sort of stayed connected and 
um, after that. And I think a couple of years later, I think I'd, you know, spent the weekend racing marathons and partying on boats. But on the Monday morning, she just messaged me and said, yeah, Joey, I might have a TV opportunity for you. She said, I was, I was, you know, we're, we're sort of in need of a big character for a new show that we're, for the next season of a show we're about to put out. And I looked at your stories on the weekend on Instagram and I think you could be that character. So, um, yeah, I got the call up. I went and sat down with the executive producer. And again, it was like the midwinter interview all over again. It was just like, I don't know anything about this show, but give me a shot and I will, you know, blow that thing up. I'll have a great time and I'll bring the energy and have, you know, I'll, uh, yeah, have some fun with it. And yeah, got the call up. And next thing you know, I'm self-isolating in Townsville for two weeks prior to the shoot. Fantastic. And tell, tell us about that experience. The self-isolation or oh, the no, just, just the fact that, uh, you know, you're up there, uh, you, you, it's an experience. Everything's new. Everything's brand new for you. You don't yeah. know what's coming uh, and, you know, anything could happen. Tell us about that. Yeah, again, it was such a foreign kind of environment to be in and, and, and it was one of the, like, in these, I actually am very comfortable in these situations. I, I love, I feel like this is where you're growing as a person when you are uncomfortable, when you're out of your your normal routine, rhythm and routine, when you get dropped into something that's very foreign. You know, this is where, this is where you grow as a person. So for me, it was, it was cool. Like, we, you know, I think, it was just like the show. Like I think I watched one season of the show leading up to it, so I had a bit of an idea of kind of the me- the mechanics of the game. But let me tell you, it is a brutal environment. So they literally just dumped us out on this big patch of dirt. There's trees and stuff around, and then it's like, you know, all right, guys, you know, you've got a cup, a change of clothes. I think we had five additional items we could bring, other than the clothes on our back. They got dropped off about five days after we arrived. So we were, I was literally in my like you know, floral ensemble and that was it. And, you know, I'd looked at the temperatures and thought, oh, geez, this will be more than warm enough. Um, but little did I know down at the creek bed out in Cloncurry, it gets very cold overnight. So I think for me, like Survivor, as I sort of was kind of getting myself into that mental sort of space for it, it for me, it was like this ultimate kind of battle of wits and wills. Like you've got these really brutal challenges that you've got to do sort of every day, but you've also got this mental side of it where, you know, there's a social aspect, there's a strategic aspect. So for me, it was like, you know, trying to navigate in my own mind. And look, I'm, I was in the Brains Tribe. That's right. I got selected for the Brains Tribe. I think 50,000 applicants, there could only be 12 in the Brains. Uh, that was your, that was your proudest t- moment, I think, wasn't it? Oh, I, I remember calling my mom saying, Mom, I'm going on Survivor. And they're doing Brains versus Brawn. And she's like, oh, great. So, you know, um, I wonder what the other Brawnies will be like. And I was like, Mom. I'm in the Brains Tribe. She goes, oh, my God, this is my proudest mum moment. Um, so anyway, yeah, but, but it was cool. Like we, we literally got dumped there. We we had to make fire from scratch, you know. I think for the first few nights, I luckily had a couple of lovely ladies that were, you know, keeping me warm, Laura and Georgia, because, you know, we, we literally had to spoon each other for those first few nights till we had fire because it was so cold. The challenges were crazy. Unfortunately, my time out there, like I was in a pretty good position. I was pulling off some good moves, but I kind of probably made my move for the top of that totem pole too early and uh, I got taken out by probably one of the greatest players the game's ever seen in Hayley with a blind side that I definitely did not see coming. (laughs) (laughs) And how do you go now with them all? Because obviously you made uh, some pretty deep connections with people when you're in that position. Tell us about uh, the relationship that, I mean, because they love to to demonstrate on a game like Survivor all of the tensions between and the the drama between people. But how how do you all go as crew afterwards? 
Yeah, look, I think for me, and I've got this from past experiences where I've raced through deserts and, you know, you just kind of, you really build, like the bonds that you build through hardship are just, you know, you can't compare them to anything because in a show like Survivor or some of these big runs I've done, like you basically, you become so vulnerable because you've just got all these, you know, comfort layers peeled back. You know, we hadn't seen our looked at a phone for probably even before we got on the show for a couple of weeks. So we were just disconnected from the outside world. We were very much, you know, we were kind of all in this together, even though we did have to vote someone off, you know, every couple of nights if we lost a challenge. Um, You didn't see it so much. Like that was just part of the game. But I think the day-to-day it was just, you know, you are doing all this cool stuff that, you know, we're all, you know, come from different walks of life, but we kind of had to make it work and it wasn't always – you know, there was definitely some conflicts within, especially the Brains tribe. We did have some sort of, you know, some some players that did cause division. But I think all in all, like these guys will be my friends for life. You know, um, even probably the player that I had the most conflict with that the sort of the editor of the show kind of portrayed. I'm going out to you know King George's of Bankstown's birthday next week. You know, so like he, he's he's a mate. Like Haley, the one who voted orchestrated my exit. You know, I've caught up with her. She lives in Bondi. We catch up all the time. We've kind of been through an experience that, you know, only those that have been through it can understand. So I think, um, yeah, like it's, you know, there, there there is something and even in the businesses of, you know, out there that your respective businesses, like, you know, you are going through tough times right now, but you got to stay together as a team and you get through this and, you know, you get out the other side, like you'll look back and smile at these because, you know, the sort of the harder you work and the more you kind of just to commit to getting things done now, like, it's going to make the reward of, of getting through it, getting through your exams, getting through all the study, getting through all of this so much, so much more worthwhile. And, and you know, you'll you'll look back at almost with fond memories, I think, at the time you're hating it right now, but you'll look back at this as, you know, this really brought us together as a team on, and this is where, where we really kind of, I think people grow through resilience, right? You, you, you become resilient, but you also, you know, these times where you have to be resilient, they're the ones where you're actually growing as well. So. Yeah, couldn't agree more. There's definitely a lot of community around the financial advice space. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, bond, uh, you know, gr- creating bonds through hardship or, or creating bonds through adversity. So I think there's definitely a lot of that yeah. to come. And as you, as you say, you know, in years to come, we're going to look back on this and go at the moment and go, well, that was, uh, we all survived and, and we're all much, uh, much, much better off for it. So. Um, that's amazing. Now, tell us about uh, tell us about your new position. Now, obviously, you're uh, you're working with a fintech. You're talk, you're uh, head of advice sales at Padua. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So, funnily enough, so as I mentioned earlier, Matt Matt, Matt Esler, one of the founders of Padua, and his sister Anne Marie Esler. I think Matt always, you know, or probably Anne Marie more so than Matt corrects people when they think that these two could be married. They're actually brother and sister, and they they try to get that very clear from the get go. Um, but yeah, look, this business um, sort of started as I guess like a humble onshore power planning business. But as it as it grew, and you know, it, and and it grew through some great associations we had with like the Wollongong University getting their best uni grads into this business. But then I guess incubating them and and you know putting them through training and everything to get them you know to a certain sort of standard. But like as the business grew, we realized, or Matt and Anne Marie realized that it needed really technology because the whole outsourced power planning piece doesn't work just going back and forth. It's not efficient, you know, if you're communicating through emails and things. So, you know, the technology, they built a, a, a really good advice um, request kind of system that sort of sits over it and some really good workflow management kind of platform that also support it. But, but then I think for, as well, like it was what 
you know, one of the bane of like advisors out there, the bane of their existence is this whole double entry of data. And there's so many fintech players out there that, you know, oh, we integrate with, you know, X plan and whatever else. But I think the issue with a lot of them is it, it sort of integrates, but then it, you know, and then what do you do? Like, where does it go from there? So I think what we've tried to build is a bit of an ecosystem where the data flows from the CRM into our digital fact finds, you know, for your review clients and whatever else. But then that feeds automatically into our advice request form. So there's this really good flow of data, but then we can also push the data back into XPlan, which again is real key to this whole kind of ecosystem. But in addition to that, what we're trying to do as well is build some really cool, you know, client engagement tools, you know, give advisors the ability to produce, you know, instantaneous ROAs that, you know, compare, you know, their existing portfolio that is is kind of pulled through from their CRM against other providers. But um, against their whole APL in one sort of click of a button. But, you know, to, to make this all happen, we've actually, you know, our tech team, like we, we actually have completed a recent capital raise where we've raised sort of between about $9 and $10 million. But that is actually that money. I would look at that as an investment of Padua. We, we are investing. We are We are in. You know, we are here to support this industry. We want to make advice more accessible to more Australians out there. And again, that's why we're making a big investment into it. We're investing in people and we're investing in our technology. I think our tech team's just grown from five to 25. That's right, 25 full-time developers all on shore. We've got a team now of nearly 100. So Gorn, you know, Padra is no longer the little startup that that it was. We are now a sort of a scaled-up business and we're, you know, we, we've, we've bought in a sales team. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much of that ten million I used up, but it was it was a lot. No, not really, um, but yeah, it's you know because we, we, now we believe that we've got this amazing product. You know, sorry, amazing technology, but we've also got you know any business that partners with us, we wrap a whole team around them. They've got their own dedicated team, an experienced team, an onshore team that can help them get advice out the door. The technology will engage their clients. So for me, it's it's just the perfect kind of environment to actually, like I said, move that dial, get more advice. Like 11,000 Aussies, oh, sorry, 11% of Aussies are paying for advice, but 40% can afford it, you know, which is crazy. That, you know, that that actually that 11% come down from 12% as we've seen advisors exit the industry and cull C&D clients, which is crazy, right? So... I think what we're trying to do, we want to start really eating into that 40%. We want to get that as close to, you know, or any Australian that can afford advice is getting advice out there. And, and again, it's good people supporting the firms and it's good technology and that's why I, I joined Padra. Yeah, fantastic. Not only that, it, uh, you know, a good family business, but not only family business, your family, part of your family because yeah. their cousins are yours. Do you feel like this is like the full circle for them, for you because it sort of, Matt, got you into the industry and yeah. now – Oh, 100%. It's uh, like, it's a great way to look at it. And I think, you know, this, I do sort of see this as a big sort of family business to a certain extent. Um, but I feel like I have done the full circle. Like Matt brought me into this game and I've kind of been on my own journey. And now I've come back with all those sort of skills and knowledge I've learned, you know, along the journey. And now I'm back and I'm, you know, ready to really put in the hard yards for them and, and take this business to, 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 you know, to what I think it could be, which is, you know, the imminent um, outsourced tech-driven um, power planning company in Australia. Fantastic. Now, Padua, uh, you know, P-A-D-U-A, what does that stand for? Is it stand for anything or is it where that name yeah, came from? So, again, it is a family business and it actually, the, the name came about, so Matt and Anne-Marie's late brother, um, Anthony, was actually my, my age at the time, passed away sadly in 2002. So being the son of good Roman Catholics, he was actually named after St. Anthony of Padua. Um, which is over in Italy. So 
that's how the name Padua came about. I think the first big workflow tracking uh, module that we built was Roma. You know, all roads lead to Rome. Um, and as we've sort of built out the tech, we've got, you know, Look, I will be honest. Our we we our probably our marketing team, which was probably mad at the time, lacked any kind of uh, imagination. So what he actually started doing was just googling Italian cities, I think, and he's just picked them off. You know, Sorrento's our digital fact find, which feeds into Capri, our client fact find, Palermo's our you know product comparison tool, Siena's our strategy. So again. If you know, you'll look at this thing and think, you know, who are you know, you know, where, oh, am I booking a holiday or you know, coming up with a good solution that's going to help my business? Look, we're the latter for sure. Um, but yeah, it does get maybe a little confusing at times. Yeah, I'm, my- I'm looking forward to Pisa uh, coming out. I can't wait oh, for yeah. that one. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Joey, thanks for catching up today. How can people get hold of you if they want to continue the conversation with you or find out a bit more about uh, what you're doing there? Yeah, look, I'd love to talk to anyone, any of the XY crew out there. Again, we're trying to build a really good community over at Padua. We we love, you know, a big big believers in in the great sort of, I, I guess, the positive kind of environment that you've created here around advisors supporting advisors. So we definitely want to be a, a, a you know a partner of as many of as many of you that need it as as we can. Um, my details are available on our website, um, padua.com.au. Otherwise, you can just call me on my mobile. Zero four two three nine four six four three nine. I'd love to hear from you. I'm a people person. I love talking to other people, as I know most of the advisors out there are. So, give me a call. I'm not shy. I, I'd love to hear you. Uh, hear you on the other end. But yeah, look. Uh, yeah, again, we're we're doing some amazing things that you know, and I really believe in the direction we're heading and how much support we can bring. Brilliant. Now you're also on LinkedIn uh, under Joey McCann. It was Joe J O E. You're now J O E Y McCann M C A W N. Yeah, I'm leveraging my reality, you know, stardom or my 15 minutes. I'm I'm now known as anyone out there who knew me as Joe McCann. He's dead. It's now Joey McCann. You can find me on. Um, Instagram, I'm baby Joey McCann. Don't even get me started on that one. But yeah, Instagram, I am Joey McCann. Um, drop me a little note on there as well. But yeah, look, I'd love to hear from you. Bring Fantastic. It on, Joey, thanks for bringing the energy. Uh, love chatting to you and appreciate your uh, your time today. Thanks, Fraser. Thanks, XY Advisor. In the words of the great Jeff Fennick, I love you all. <laughs>